All right, welcome back, pool fans from across the country and around the world. You are listening to American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week. It is July the 7th, 2016, and I am live on the location of the 2016 Atlantic Challenge Cup here in Schaumburg, Illinois, right outside of Chicago at the convention center. And uh, we are chatting with uh, the crew and the team, and everybody's getting amped up and ramped up. Everything's getting ready to go. Tomorrow uh, kicks off the competition uh, tomorrow in the evening, about 7.30, I believe it is. And it's a free stream. You guys cannot miss this. Put it on your computer or your phone. Hook it up to your TV. Put it on the bar. Whatever you do, you guys got to watch this. This is our future champions. So good stuff coming up. That's going to be tomorrow night running through Monday night. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. And then Monday is the, is the finals. So make your plans to watch it now. As a matter of fact, a little bit later on here in a second, we um, took the team aside and, and uh, gave them a chance to send uh, a shout-out to all their friends and family and to say hello to you guys. So stick around for that, and you can meet the team. A little bit later on in the show, we're going to be covering the rest, uh, not the rest of, but chapter, um, let's see, five and six of Willie Hoppy's book. That's where we are this week. But before you go, we have a couple of other things to cover. You know, the APA is having their junior championships this weekend. As a matter of fact, it started right now as we speak. The APA junior championships are going on in Davenport, Iowa at Sharkey's. If you are interested, check into that. The uh, As we speak also, the West Coast Challenge is going on out at uh, California Billiards. There's a one-pocket competition that's just uh, uh, on top of a 10-ball competition that's going on at the same time. Good pool, some strong competition going on on the West Coast there. Uh, and on the 12th through the 14th, in case you didn't know, it's going to be Efren, the legend, the man. Efren Reyes versus Scott Frost out at the Casino del Sol in Tucson. You're going to want to check it to PoolActionTV.com for that great competition. That's going to be too. Good stuff, man. And before I forget, there's a couple of early warnings I have to give you. The uh, CSI 10-ball, U.S. Open 10-ball is coming up the 20th to the 22nd. The U.S. Open 8-ball championship is coming up the 23rd to the 25th. And then you've got two of what could possibly be the strongest challenge matches of the year. Mike DeShane versus Rodney Morris in the Tiger Challenge. Playing 10 ball, race to 21 on the 27th of July. That is going to be great stuff. And there's the Poison, Pick Your Poison Challenge. Shane Van Boning versus Torsten Holm. And they're playing 8 ball. A race to 21 on July the 26th, just the day before. Both of those promise to be some outstanding pool. You're going to want to check in with the people at CSI. Play CSIpool.com for details on the stream for those. So with that, that's your uh, action for the weekend and your upcoming events. Stick around to meet Team USA. And after that, we'll get on to Willie Hoppy's book right after this. (laughs) 
right, welcome back everybody. I am out on the scene of the Atlantic Challenge Cup from 2016, and I'm in the practice room with Team USA. We're gonna give them all a chance to say hi to you guys, so we're gonna start out with uh, Coach, Coach Curly Munson. <laughs> <laughs> this is Coach Earl Munson. Shout out to everyone, go to Team USA. This is Ryan Ponton, 19 years old from Bradley, Illinois, and I'd just like to give a shout out to my family and for all my supporters for making this possible. Go Team USA. My name is Ricky Evans, and I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Shout out to Rick Ross, he's got the same name as me. <laughs> my name is Shane Wolford from Roanoke, Virginia. I'm 16 years old. Uh, shout out to all my family and friends. My name is Serena Black. I'm 17 from Warrensburg, Illinois. Shout out to my sponsors. It's, on, it's an honor to be on your teams and shout out to my family and friends back home. Go Team USA. My name is Chris Robinson. I'm from Ventura, California. I'm 18 years old. I'd like to thank you for all my supporters and my whole team that's here with me today. Go Team USA. My name's April Larson. I'm 16 from Bloomington, Minnesota. And I'd like to give a thanks to everybody. There's not one person I won't leave out. Go Team USA! Okay, welcome back, guys, to the portion of the program where we are currently reading through a book. We're going to be covering Willie Hoppy's 30 Years of Billiards, originally published in 1925, and we are so far on Chapter 5. If you want to go ahead and uh, if you want to catch up, you can go ahead and go back to the two or three previous episodes when we covered uh, one and through four. So we're digging with five today. Chapter five starts off. The Hoppy family goes on tour. The only condition on which my mother would consent to breaking up our home in Cornwall was that she be permitted to go along on our travels and take care of Frank and me. This was the arrangement we worked out. My father traveled on ahead, booking the dates and arranging for our hotel accommodations, while my mother, my mother brought up the rear with us boys, collecting the tickets at exhibitions, checking up the receipts and hearing our lessons. She also was charged with seeing that we practice an hour or two each day, an arrangement which Frank and I found greatly to our liking after the stern discipline of my father. So we started out, bravely, to seek the family fortunes on the green cloth. One of the first towns we made was Princeton, New Jersey. The roomkeeper, I believe his name was Bang, had a big crowd of college students and a half dozen members of the Princeton faculty to watch us play. When the exhibition was over, one of the professors put his fingers on my skull and announced that I had a brachycephalous head, which meant that it was broader than it was long. Jacob Schaefer, the old wizard, and George Sutton, too, were brachycephals, he said, and he believed that broad-headed people played better billiards than others. Another professor, who asked me a number of questions about the game, said that I had 
said that I had a subconscious mathematical mind that could calculate angles instinctively without resort resorting to the slower and more, lo- more laborious process of measuring with the eye from various positions. I can't remember what I rep- replied to all these profound conclusions, but my mother was deeply impressed, and she wrote all about it to my father the next day. Truly, we were getting up in the world to attract the attention of learned Princeton professors. I wondered what the boys back at Cornwall Landing would have said if they heard that I was a Bracasifal. On to Easton, Pennsylvania, thence south through Philadelphia and westward into a country that had not heard anything about us and was extremely skeptical about our ability. Sometimes it was difficult to secure bookings. Sometimes we played in the smallest, meanest billiard room in a small, mean town. Occasionally we had to lay over for a day or two while my father traveled from one city to another in an attempt to secure an engagement. We couldn't afford to sleep at the best hotels. Not infrequently, when funds were low, my father would arrange for us to stop with some private family where we would get our meals and lodging at a reasonable rate. My mother was a patient, untiring companion through all of our ups and downs. Although we were deprived of a home, she made it her business to see that we got the benefits of a wholesome, domestic routine. We were up early in the mornings, hurrying to the railroad stations with our little satchels and cues if we had to move on that next day. If not, my mother would take us for a long walk, returning to the billiard room in time for an hour's practice before lunch. In the afternoon, we studied our lessons and had another practice session at the table. Frequently, we had afternoon exhibitions to play, and then the lessons were, sh- were cut short. The receipts for our exhibitions varied as greatly as the characters of the billiard rooms we played in. Sometimes we would get a flat guarantee of $15 or $25 from the roomkeeper. Sometimes he would give us 10 and all that was taken in at the door. Once in a great while, the receipts would run up as high as $50 for a single day's exhibitions, and then what a gala feast the Hoppy family would have that night. Out of the money she collected from the roomkeepers, my mother would keep enough for our living expenses and railroad fare and send the remainder, if there was any remainder, on ahead to my father. Frank and I were too young to be bothered about financial affairs but I still have a vivid recollection of the periods of depression that would fall upon the family when receipts slumped away down and we had scarcely enough for breakfast and railroad fare. Meanwhile, the newspapers through Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, and Indiana were printing notices of our exhibitions and gradually the fame of the Hoppy Brothers, boy billiardists, was spreading further afield. By the time we were ready to invade Chicago, my father had saved enough from our earnings to purchase two small tuxedo jackets with black waistcoats and trousers to match. We had our pictures taken and decked out in our professional attire. That concludes chapter 5. 
Chapter 6. I learn a valuable lesson from Frank Ives, the, the young Napoleon. It was in Chicago during the winter of 1897-98 while we were playing a series of exhibitions at Pop Anson's Billiard Room that I thought first saw Frank Ives. Of course, I had heard a great deal about him from my father, who had often seen him play, and in Maurice Daly's room in New York, they had told many stories about the young Napoleon that made a deep impression on me. Ives was a champion roller skater, a champion bicycle rider, a horseman of note, and a great baseball catcher before he took up billiards. Old-time sportsmen maintained that he was the greatest all-around professional athlete that ever lived. When he reached the top in billiards around 1891, he gave up the other sports and devoted himself to mastering the ivories. Maurice Daly says that Ives had the most remarkable pair of eyes ever possessed by any human being. At the racetrack, watching the horses line up at the pole a half a mile away, Ives could pick out his horse and rider instantly, while others around him peered in vain through high-powered glasses. Transferred to the billiard table, this remarkable vision enabled him to land with precision on the thin edge of a ball where other players were content with any kind of carom. In addition to keen eyesight, he had the most re remarkable power of concentration. Billiards was an intellectual study to him. He would spend hours mastering some abstract problem of close position play. When he had won the championship from Jacob Schaefer and beaten all the other foremost players in this country, Ives looked around for new worlds to conquer. He made a trip to England and spent several weeks studying the English game. John Roberts was the English champion then, and in April 1893, Ives challenged him to a match at 6,000 points. Articles were signed and they were to meet during Derby Week the following June. Returning to this country, Ives obtained an English billiard table, 6 by 12, with 6 pockets, and spent several weeks in secret practicing. When he sailed for England, he told his friends in New York to bet any amount on him that he had solved the English game and would beat Roberts without difficulty. Everybody thought he was depending on the rail nurse, which he had perfected to a remarkable degree, to turn the trick, and the wise ones pointed out that the rail nurse was much more difficult on the English table where six pockets break the continuity of the rails than on the American table. And Roberts had so much more experience with the English game that a few that few sporting men gave Ives more than a passing chance. But Ives had one backer who accompanied him to London and offered the bookmakers all the money they would take until London sportsmen began to suspect the young Napoleon had something up his sleeve. Here's what happened. For the first three nights, Roberts won handily, 
rolling up a thousand points each night to Ives 689, 981, and 573. And then on the fourth night, in the opening inning, Ives ran the balls along the rail to the corner pocket, and by careful nursing and close manipulation, squeezed them into the jaw where they lodged fast. Then he played his cue ball back and forth, back and forth, while the referee grew hoarse from counting. He ran 2,540 points in that position and only broke them up when the finish of the game was in sight. It was Ives' nature, then, to turn around and teach the rail nurse and the crotch to Roberts and give him a return engagement in this country. They'd played two more matches and broke even. But I started out to tell you about my own experience with the young Napoleon in Chicago. He watched me play an exhibition match with my brother Frank and after the game shook me warmly by the hand. Now, he said, come over here in the corner. I want to show you something. He took a set of balls and placed them on the table. He showed me where I had to let them get out into the middle panel during, excuse me, he showed me where I had let them get out into the middle panel during one of my runs. Never let them pass the spot, he said. What's the use of playing on a table that's five by ten when you can make the table two and a half by five by keeping them below the spot? Then he showed me several ways to go through the balls in the open table so that I could turn them around and march them down towards the end rail again. I don't believe there is any living player today who could play that end table system more consistently than Ives. I thanked him and practiced religiously on that point for many weeks with gratifying results. Less than two years later, I was to learn Less than two years later, I was to learn of the young Napoleon's premature death at Progreso, Mexico, a victim of tuberculosis. My father told me afterward that it was drink and dissipation that killed him. Frank's, Frank Ives thought he was Superman, my father said. He thought he could drink twice as much whiskey as anyone else and still retain his steady nerve and his health. That's why he's dead at 33. You remember that end game he showed you at Cap Anson's in Chicago? That was a, valu a valuable lesson. Let his untimely death be a lesson to you too, Willie. Never touch a drop of liquor. So I am doubly indebted to poor Frank Ives, one of the greatest billiard players that ever lived. And that concludes Chapter 6. Thanks, guys, for tuning in, and we will join you again uh, next week with uh, more from Willie Hoppy's 30 Years of Billiards, right here on American Billiard Radio.